okay. it's like it's whole like five, four, three. Like that's more for live live TV. No, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Do you want to do you want to start the intro then? Yeah, but also I don't want to like you know it's sort of a tradition that you did the countdown. I don't want to sort of. <laughs> no, fine. It's recording now, Tom. Okay. <laughs> so you know it's it's your time you're wasting. Yeah. Okay. Um. <laughs> so no countdown. Just straight no, in. We're going straight in now because that's what you wanted. Welcome to Media Democracy. It's a semi-regular podcast about media, politics, and the politics of the media. I'm Tom Mills, and I'm joined, as ever, by my co-host, Dan Hind. Hello, Dan. Hello. How are you on this fine evening? Do you know, I'm all right. We're recording quite um, quite late in the day, but my energy levels are still pretty high up. You're buzzing. Um, and um, I'm coming, coming away from a brief glimpse at Twitter... Which is the best way to start any podcast, I think. It, well, it's how I keep abreast of current affairs, Tom. Um, but um, I've just learned that Richard Bergen has leapt into the Labour media debate with his proposal of printing a free newspaper for London's commuters. Is uh, it actually just for London? Then? I think that's the idea. That's the idea that I um, What's, have what's the up. thinking there? Well, you see, you're asking me, though, like I'm an expert on these things. Um, it's literally a couple of stray tweets I've seen. I've seen more more kind of pushback against it than I've seen the actual... Well, I think that's a sort of general rule for any proposal coming from the left of the Labour Party, to be fair. That is, you only really see the kind of... Um, Static. Concentric circles of derision. Yeah. Uh, rather than the, the epicentre of innovation. It would be a bit weird if it was just London, though, given that there's all this chat about Red Walls and, like, Labour's heartlands and stuff. But anyway, let's proceed on the assumption that it's just a, a free newspaper for commuters. Yeah, I think that's a fair that's a fair assessment. Um, and, it you know, uh, it shows that in, in, in a slightly st- strange way, the leadership debate is taking on board the the issue of how Labour deals with its media and communications deficit, if you like. Yeah. Um, Rebecca Long-Bailey um, published an interesting reply to the Communication Workers Union talking about media strategy as well, um, which is much more much more thoughtful and substantive than than the replies of the other um, candidates, I think it's fair to say. Um so, you know, this is obviously something that um, people are starting to think about. And um, the reflex of, of talking about newspapers has a, has a sort of a certain history. Um, when the left thinks about media, it thinks about newspapers in, in a way that is is quite kind of crazy making, given that newspapers are notoriously <laughs> difficult to make money out of at the best of times and are in a, a sort of steep secular decline. Um, plus the fact that the left will always struggle to get subsidies from corporate advertisers. So you're left thinking that if you were going to start building a communications apparatus in 2020, you wouldn't necessarily want to start with a a newspaper. No. But I suppose I suppose it does raise an interesting question really about like can a political party become a space which is not about the diffusion of messages from the center but which is a kind of a collection of 
egalitarian spaces where people can develop ideas um, in particular circumstances, you know, in particular places, you know, coming from particular um, uh, class coordinates or, or particular um, identities and so on, and actually, be, you know, be more interesting um, than a, a kind of centrally directed party could ever be in its in its sort of communicative operations. I mean, it's kind of what's held some of the stuff back, isn't it? Is that like, I mean, I suppose, you know, it comes back to this sort of issue of of laborism and that sort of central kind of um, centralizing impulse in the the labor machine that they don't seem to want to actually devolve, you know, what what is essentially a form of political power to um, publishing operations, you know, they're, they're just distrustful of that. And I suppose, you know, part of that is that kind of impulse of parliamentarianism, you know, which is is pulling people towards um, electoral strategy and part message discipline and the rest of it. But yeah. um, in a way, you know, you sort of get stuck in the middle with Labour, don't you? Because like, in order to actually circumvent that that kind of those kinds of disadvantage, you'd, I would say you, you would need to have those sort of kind of like yeah decentralized kinds of operations that you're alluding to. But if you do that in a half-assed way, then it just look it will just end up being completely counterproductive and like yeah like if if you if 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 what you want is to put messages out like mm-hmm. i.e. centralized um, coordinated messages why have autonomous organizations do it obviously doesn't make any sense yeah. that that community strategy only makes sense if you're actually generally trying to devolve power and that's yeah. quite a medium to long-term strategy isn't it like it doesn't make sense in a in an electoral cycle i don't think it certainly doesn't make sense in the in the in the context of you say like uh, an election election campaign or or an imminent election campaign um and you know, I think it's quite it's it's worth looking, I suppose, at the relationship between the Conservative Party and its media allies, mm. where like the Conservative Party is not beholden to or held responsible for whatever drivel, say, the sun comes up with at any point in time. Um, and part of the anxiety, I think, in Labour is that, like you say, if, if you give up any ounce of message control, um, then you're going to be attacked for for whatever anyone ever says on the left um if it's remotely um connected to the Labour party in any way whatsoever and i think that's something yes, you're right it's it's kind of bizarre isn't it because like if you look at the you know how close the relationship is between the conservatives and these operations it just doesn't you know it would never occur to someone at the bbc to be like look at this thing that the sun's saying you know even if they used to work for like an mp or something like, it just wouldn't come up yeah like, yeah it's crazy now i mean obviously there are you know there are just different there are different different rules that apply but nevertheless if i mean we're with i think we're thinking in terms we're in danger of thinking in terms of as it were the old days where things were either published or they were private Mm. and the fact is that um you know labor members are vulnerable to being um, to having their private messages scooped up and and publicised if if they're sort of seen to be politically damaging to leadership, um, the the idea that you could sort of seal away Labour from its membership in any meaningful way, I think is just it, it's like an impossible proposition. So I think 
you know, it, we've got to embrace the idea that actually we are, there are half a million people in the Labour Party and they, they do actually have brains and they're mm-hmm. capable of thinking. And, and, and they don't need to be sort of directed from the centre in some simple way, but rather they need to be in a, in a, a, a kind of dialogue both with the political centre, but also with their communities and with, with, other, with other sources of information and authority. Mm. Um, and, and this, you know, I've been rereading Jeremy Gilbert's articles for OD about, you know, the, the aftermath of the election, because we're going to do a, um, Jeremy and I are going to do a little paperback of, of the articles. And it's, I mean, it does touch on this issue, like, wh- are we serious about being a political movement? Mm. Um, rather than a political party and if we are then we really do have to sort of be quite clear about what autonomy within that movement means and like and not not be freaking out at the thought that someone somewhere might say something that will get us yeah yeah. no I totally agree I mean you know in in retrospect I mean well I don't know if it's still a retrospect with like the Labour anti-Semitism crisis but like ultimately you know that was treated as something which was the responsibility of the leadership to deal with you know people within its ranks for like rules which may or may not have been violated or some something which may not may or may not have been said which may or may not have yeah violated some kind of party rule and that obviously there are different ways that that could have been navigated but one of the things that wasn't argued was that well you know there's there's party policy and then there's there's party membership and people within you know the bounds of the rules of the Labour Party allowed to have their own views and they're allowed to express them you know and you see that kind of tension I suppose arising and the way that this was understood in the context of the anti-Semitism crisis was obviously like people flocking into the party with these sort of um you know uh noxious views about israel or or jewish people or whatever but part of that i think was probably just a culture clash between people who saw politics as being yeah what is just said in in meetings to people with a much more sort of open sense of politics and combined with i guess younger people who had lived out their political lives on social media creating this kind of shitstorm really and yeah the part of the defense i mean i think that was part of that sort of defensive posture which characterized that whole period is like thinking about the labor party still as being exactly that like something in which like discipline should have should be imposed you know or i guess there were you know there were all kinds of pressures which put which has pushed the the labor leadership in the last three years to operate like that but like fundamentally it wasn't an outward looking kind of approach to take I mean forgetting about the anti-semitism crisis and you know how that was navigated like particularly but I think that was you know if anyone thought that the initial promise of Corbynism was movement building I don't think that that was you know substantively achieved I don't think that's controversial no that's right and the response to things like um the the anti-semitism crisis were evidence of the fact that they just didn't they didn't know then how to make good on that idea of of movement building because if if you're going to be held up held responsible um for every dumb thing that anyone says on twitter all the time you're you're gonna have time to do nothing else yeah um uh, yeah i mean there's a whole there's a whole conversation to be had about that because i think 
you know, Im implicit in the idea, for example, that momentum was going to sort of straddle the space between the movements and the party was this idea that it would be a communicative space. It would create a space where leftists um, or progressives could meet across party boundaries um, and explore a common agenda. And that, you know, that was a communicative function that um, could have been taken by momentum. But under under sectarian pressure from the right, it was like, no, no, you have to be a member of the Labour Party to be in momentum. And, it, it, you know, that that move outwards was kind of blocked by by the uh, by the logic of internal um, conflict within the Labour Party itself in quite a, quite a narrow way. I mean, the other thing to say, I suppose, is that we're used to the idea. Um, and this is something that. Um, Lee and, I, Lee and I were talking about yesterday, you know, we used the idea of a party being a, a unitary operation um, and any evidence of splitting is seen as weakness. And that kind of runs against the idea of, well, actually, no, we're, we're just we're just figuring things out. You know what I mean? It's like we, we don't know for, in advance what, what the correct thing to do is. And so obviously we're going to disagree. Um, and that sits quite uneasily with the with the sort of PR marketing idea of a party with a brand and a and a you you know you know a clear message and so on yeah um, tom i'm going to confess that while you were talking i looked up richard bergen's proposal and it's not just for london that was me being an unforgivable praise the lord unforgivable parochial southeasterner um it would be i should say for the record and for the listeners that uh, dan does not live in london but i do so if there well, is someone right. guilty of that, it's uh, uh, on the podcast with me. I live in a left-behind small town. I'll you do, you. yeah. Which makes me far... You're very much at the cutting edge of like I... uh, Labour I... politics now. I'm the kind of ageing homeowner that okay. Labour needs to win back. Yeah. Um, uh... That's why I just hope that whoever does win the Labour leadership is is listening to your <laughs> this podcast and your, and your thoughts. Um. So anyway, so that's um, that's our um, our quick take on on communications in the. We do more of that. We're, we're just um, we're just responding to initial things on Twitter. But Dan and I will try and do a more considered um, proper show on like how the issue's been discussed um, among the Labour leadership contenders and what what things look like in terms of the Labour's future policy on media reform and communicative strategy um at some point in the future um when that arrives and what the labor party is looking like at that point is is anyone's guess but um you know i promised it now so we have to do it yeah it's a commitment that is a that's binding <laughs> you could take it's, a score it's a manifesto commitment yeah um good so we are going to quite soon go to a um recorded interview with first part of a pre-recorded interview with judith jakes Julia is a critic, filmmaker and author. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, New York Times, Washington Post and many other places. Um, in 2017, Juliet started the uh, radio show Sweet 212, which is, think of it as a good version of In Our Time. Uh, and in 2015, Verso published her memoir, Trans. Uh, so, as I say, this is the first part of an interview. We're going we're gonna, to... Um, play the second part in a week or so. So Juliet, welcome to Media Democracy. We've been meaning to have you on for a little while, so I'm glad that uh, you finally made it on. Let's start with 
some of your background as a writer because I think that would be a useful way to to get to grips with what the kinds of issues that we're going to be discussing and in terms of the politics of the media and given that you yourself have been a contributor to mainstream publications could, could we maybe start with how it was that you came to be uh, contributing to The Guardian and The New Statesman and, and, and the kind of circumstances that led to your 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 departure from from that line of work? Yeah, absolutely. It's impossible to answer this question, I'm afraid, without uh, intertwining the personal and the professional. But that's that's quite interesting anyway, and I think very relevant to what we're going to talk about. So, you know, I realised I had some sort of gender dysphoria uh, at the age of about 10. And this was something that was always on my mind as a teenager in the 90s. I was always seeking out media representations of trans, non-binary, gender variant people, uh, partly because, you know, this was the era of Section 28. You weren't allowed to talk about these things in schools, really, or public libraries. So really, for me, finding info on who I was or some sort of positive role model was a matter of flicking through the TV listings and finding films on Channel 4 or BBC Two late at night, or even, you know, American chat shows, Ricky Lake, Jerry Springer, that kind of thing, uh, anything else you could find. And, you know, as a teenager, I found that a lot of the depictions of trans people I saw in newspapers, particularly the Daily Mail, it's what my parents got, were obviously not very positive. There was lots of stereotyping of, you know, kind of burly men in dresses making these unreasonable demands of the NHS and the British state or their employers. Mm. Um, you know, obviously things like Jerry Springer were very exploitative and, you know, often framed as something like surprise i'm transsexual and you know a trans woman would tell her boyfriend that she had a transsexual history and you know hopefully there would be some sort of lurid uh conflict uh none of these things are particularly encouraging but a lot of the films i used to watch even if they weren't written by or directed by or starring trans people some of the films would be more encouraging i'm thinking of things like priscilla queen of the desert or nigel finch's film about stonewall or even mary harron's film i shot andy warhol uh, which would include you know quite nuanced depictions of, of trans women in particular um and then you have other things like ace ventura pet detective uh which often used trans people as a bit of a joke um something presented as being kind of deceptive or disgusting uh, so a lot of the images of trans people I was taking in were not very positive. Uh, but of course, I did grow up with the early days of the Internet. So I learned quite early on the usefulness of the Internet in circumventing these attempts to keep certain types of people out of the public discourse. Um, and it probably saved my life, you know, like just Googling the words transvestite and transsexual as a teenager uh, and finding you know, websites just by ordinary people just giving details of their lives, photographs, much more positive, um, much more in-depth and interesting representation of who they were as people. And that always stuck with me. Did you, um, was it more sort of uh, sort of diary type blog account websites that you were engaging with? Were there, were there forums? Or did you encounter any kind of online community at that time? 
Um, I mean, this is this is kind of late nineties, so it's all kind of dial up, and you know, they're mostly like GeoCities pages and things like that. Yeah. Um, I actually didn't particularly. I wasn't so interested in the interactive possibilities of the internet at that point. Mm. I was more just looking for affirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, which which I found in these things. I mean, I would email people. Um, yeah. And you know, I I liked email as a more private form of communication i mean i was semi out at this point i'm kind of a sick former um and i've told people that i'm a cross-dresser but um partly you know the word transvestite uh, transsex uh, part, sorry partly the word transgender wasn't available to me at that point um so i had transvestite which had these sort of connotations of sexual fetishism and transsexual which sort of implied a completed medical process that at that point i wasn't really i didn't think i wanted to undergo um, I mean, there was this interesting line of American transgender theory, uh, authors like Sandy Stone, Kate Bornstein, um, Leslie Feinberg and others. I didn't know them at this point. Um, I discovered them uh, in my early 20s when I did a master's at the University of Sussex. Um, I didn't do the gender studies course. I did a course on literature and film. Uh, but I have friends doing the kind of queer studies and gender studies courses at Sussex who introduced me to these writers. And they, at this point, I was already writing short fiction about um, gender dysphoria, gender identity, trans issues. Um, but these writers, you know, really kind of changed my perspective on it. Uh, at the time, I was just getting into journalism, but I wasn't writing about LGBT issues at all. I was writing for uh mostly for a um experimental film magazine called film waves which is uh, long gone now but i was writing about you know the london filmmakers cooperative and you know derek jarman and things like that jean-luc godard i wrote on quite a lot um that sort of line of of kind of left-wing and queer underground filmmaking mm-hmm. uh really i got into writing about LGBT issues later in my 20s, sort of towards the back end of the 2000s, I started writing for a couple of publications in Brighton, 360 News, and um, was there th- was one called 360 and one called 180 News. Uh, and neither of them had any trans coverage. So I met the editor who said, look, I'd like you to write on trans issues for us. So I kind of got experience of writing you know, opinion pieces about whatever trans-related stories were in the news at that point, so 2008-9. Were you still writing cultural, like, film criticism and stuff like that as well? Well, there was a big tranche of uh, Arts Council cuts in early 2008, which kind of changed the direction of my writing. Um, Film Waves closed down, along with most of the other places I was writing for. Um, I nearly got a job with uh, the London magazine, and they, as an editorial assistant, and they lost their funding, so that didn't happen. Mm. I also had an interview with uh, Time Out, who wanted me to be a kind of experimental film critic for them, but I didn't get that job. So um, the direction of my career could have been very different. That was 2008 as well. Uh, and all of these things happened around about the same time, and, uh, you know, just realised that actually I kind of had an existential need to write about trans issues, uh, partly because I was quite close to transitioning at this point. I started transitioning in 2009 when I was... 27 but also you know as I lived this more I also became more concerned with the way we represented in the media and actually a lot of other people had this idea at the same time during the late 90s and 2000s there were a number of um, legal gains for trans people you know during the the Blair government which you know one of the more positive things we can say about the Blair government is that their record on LGBT issues was you know better than any government before or since 
Um, so one of the things they did was scrap section 28, which I mentioned earlier. That went 2003. Do you think it's um, worth? I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure most people know what section 28 is, but I guess maybe so American se- yeah. and younger misses might not. Yeah, I'll unpack section 28. So section 28 was passed in 1988 as part of the Local Government Act, which was introduced to the British Parliament in 1986. Um, this was very much a kind of moral panic, kind of culture wars uh, style of politics. Um, you know, the context here, of course, is the uh, HIV and AIDS crisis. Um, and I think the American reaction to the HIV and AIDS crisis is, is more famous. But Britain did have its share of, um, you know, influential, particularly kind of conservative Christian people in important public positions uh, who welcomed the coming of AIDS. Quite famously, uh, James Anderton, who was the notorious head of police in, uh, in Manchester, in the 80s said that uh, people with uh, with AIDS were swimming around in a cesspit of their own making um, and was very happy that this disease seemed to be targeting uh, homosexual men and sex workers in particular. Um, and, you know, there were constant moral panics on the front pages of The Sun in particular, um, you know, the Mail and the other right wing tabloids, um, but even, you know, broadsheet papers. Uh, had a sustained assault on gay men in particular through the 80s, but also lesbians, uh, partly as um, part of this attack on what the um, the right wing press called the loony left. Um, you know, if you will uh, look at them and, you know, this was brought into government propaganda as well. The conservative election campaign in 1987, you can find some uh, wonderful posters about what the loony left are going to introduce if Labour get elected. And uh, one of these things was Gay Sports Day, um, which was, uh, you know, uh, anyone who knows I didn't, queer, know, didn't know about that That's anyone who knows queer yeah. culture well will know that the way that gay people are going to you know infiltrate and overtake British culture is, is obviously through sport <laughs> I mean you know I speak as a big football fan and player who has been very involved with the sort of LGBT football scene but anyway um section I'm 28 on that, that's a, I mean I, I was I wasn't I was completely unaware of that particular, as it were, line of attack in the 1987 election, um, the loony left, as you say, was a constant punch bag throughout the 80s um, and, and was an incredibly important wedge issue, I think, um, in dividing the left between its, its there was a sort of, uh, an older cohort of more socially conservative um, labour and labourist politicians and i think the new left were much more um committed to uh notions of sort of universal emancipation um and i think the right right wing press were absolutely ruthless about about driving a wedge between those two elements in the labor coalition Um, yeah absolutely and so what the government did with section 28 by introducing to the local government act uh, which is basically an attack on funding for local councils uh, there was a a book, uh, supposedly a children's book, uh, I think it was called Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin, uh, published in the 80s, which was found in, I think, the children's section of, I think, Haringey Library. Uh, and there was a big moral panic about this, this idea that, you know, schools were promoting homosexuality. And there's a famous Margaret Thatcher speech where she talks about children being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. Um, and so Section 28... Uh, prohibited uh, schools, libraries and other public bodies from promoting homosexuality. Um, 
no one was ever and so this was passed as part of the local government act uh people like ken livingstone jeremy corbyn were very vocal in uh, attacking uh attacking this both you know because it was an attack on council funding but also out of um solidarity with um with gay and lesbian people in particular who were the main targets of it uh no one was ever prosecuted under section 28 but of course didn't need to be it was a piece of silencing legislation mm. um it was intended to create a kind of climate of silence and, and fear um i didn't know and... that that's really interesting that bit, because this is one of the things that i think you get with these kind of uh laws you know is the assumption that oh no no, no you're all panicking about nothing you know like and it, that always gets overlooked the fact that if you if you pass a law that like is going to get implemented i mean prevent functions like this doesn't it like you actually a lot of the the impact of the legislation doesn't have to even go through the courts or any kind of like legal process um yeah i didn't know that interesting no Sorry, and similar similar legislation to section 28 has been introduced um elsewhere i've actually just a little tangent i've done um quite a lot of work with the LGBT community in uh, Kyrgyzstan. I've uh, been to Bishkek a couple of times in the last six years. And a similar law was introduced to the Kyrgyz parliament and it never never made it to its final reading and legal assent. Um, um, it made, it, made yeah. it through two readings of the Kyrgyz parliament. Um, and that was enough to provoke a sort of quite big social backlash against LGBT people. Um, mm. So the law doesn't actually have to go through, um, but you know, obviously here it did, and it was um, it was in place until 2003, when you know the Blair government, to their credit, had made it a manifesto point in 1997 to um, to scrap it, yeah. uh, and they faced pretty huge opposition to getting rid of it. Um, so it took them six years to to finally get it off the um, the statute books, and so the next thing the Blair government did after that was the um, Gender Recognition Act in 2004, which allowed transsexual people to have their acquired gender legally recognised and be issued with a new birth certificate. Um, This was quite a convoluted process. You had to prove that you've been living in your chosen gender for two years. You had to have um, medical confirmation, you know, from someone from a gender identity clinic uh that you were doing this and there was also like a spousal veto um if you were married then you had to get your spouse to co-sign your application if your spouse refused to do that you'd get given an interim gender recognition certificate which could be used as uh you know grounds for annulment if your uh spouse was not happy with you um transitioning um the other thing the the other thing that the gender recognition act didn't do it didn't provide any provision for non-binary identities only recognized male and female and people moving from one to the other so there were some problems with the legislation but nonetheless that was quite a big legal victory Mm -hmm. Uh, you'd also had in 1999 um, the legal right to transition via the nhs so to get hormones and surgery via the nhs and you'd also had uh i forget which act it was but a piece of legislation Mm -hmm. Uh, that prevented employers from sacking you for transitioning. Um, I mean, that's, you know, not entirely watertight, of course. Employers could pass over you at the interview stage for being trans. They can find other reasons to get rid of you. And if you can't evidence that they've gotten rid of you because you're transsexual, then um, then you haven't got a case. But nonetheless, people weren't just openly allowed to say, oh, you're transsexual, get out. Um, so there have been some important legal victories. So round about the end of the 2000s, a lot of British activists had the same idea, which was that 
transphobia in comedy programs, in the newspapers, um, in particular, and just in the wider media was doing us quite a lot of damage. So quite a lot of people had the idea simultaneously of trying to challenge it. Now, people chose different uh, approaches to this. I mean, some people just said, look, you know, we should ignore the mainstream media and build up our own spaces. We shouldn't, you know, collaborate with with these sort of, you know, these institutions that are structurally transphobic. Some people formed uh, pressure groups. So a group called Transmedia Watch formed in 2009 in response to an ITV sitcom called Moving Wallpaper, which had a number of, um, you know, a transsexual character who was just used as a, a punching bag, basically, um, and formed as a Facebook group uh, initially. And then, then there's a kind of pressure group that, you know, had uh, a Twitter presence, a website, uh, and liaised with uh, with newspapers about their trans coverage. And then some people had the idea of trying to work within the mainstream media and seeing if you could kind of change it from within. And my idea, uh, which a friend suggested to me in 2009, not long after I started transitioning and just been explaining to him what it was like to just live as a transsexual woman in Brighton in 2009, was to just pitch a long blog to The Guardian. You know, I'd grown up with the more positive newspaper coverage of particularly transsexual people would be one-off stories where the newspapers would confound your expectations by publishing something fairly generous. And it would usually be, you know, an individual is pretty much always a transsexual woman who had, you know, the framing was always kind of, you know, I risked my marriage and my 2.4 children and my nice house in the suburbs with my nice mm. car, my nice job. Uh, in order to be myself, and it's worked out okay. So it was always framed in this very kind of, you know, conventional, bourgeois sort of way. Um, and that didn't really speak to me, I and mean, that was my background, really, and it was exactly what I was trying to get away from. Mm. Um, you know, I'd been on the fringes of sort of radical queer subcultures in Brighton and hadn't really found them particularly amenable to me either. But it was certainly more interesting to me than the type of life that was being uh, presented in, in these kind of one-off articles. And I thought that um, a regular blog series uh, in a space like The Guardian would be a good way to go. I thought that you could do a lot of things simultaneously. You could challenge these stereotypes about transsexual women being socially conservative by placing myself within, you know, sort of post-punk and electroclash and other uh, subcultures that I was around during my 20s, radical queer politics and spaces as well. Um, so you could then also challenge the idea that, you know, as Dan alluded to, this old kind of idea that left-wing and laborist politics were inherently opposed to, you know, kind of what gets called identity politics and I don't particularly like that phrase but um, you know you could challenge that opposition by placing myself within the wider left could challenge you know transphobia um, within the Guardian as well because the Guardian had a very bad track record of publishing uh, people who called themselves radical feminists uh, you know had often grown up in the 70s and 80s uh, when there was a line of, um, of feminist theory that was very hostile to trans people insisted that trans people should be excluded from women only and feminist spaces um mm. you know this is this is also quite a long story it really 
Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you, like, uh, how, how was the Guardian generally perceived at this time by by trans activists at the point at which you you started this 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 blog? Uh, it was widely widely mistrusted and disliked. Mm. Um, the Guardian would publish very little on trans issues at this time. Uh, most of their content came from a handful of writers: uh, Julie Birchall, Julie Vindle, and Jermaine Greer. Yeah. Um, there was a particularly notorious Julie Bindle piece from uh, 2004, um, which she published under the title of Gender Benders Beware. Uh, this was the year of the, the, the act that you mentioned earlier, the Gender Recognition Act. Sort of. Yes, and it was around the Gender Recognition Act that this right, was published. Yeah. And you'll, you know, we'll, we'll, this will be a constant theme. Kind of every time there was any effort to pass a piece of legislation that would improve trans rights there would be a line of um, anti-trans opinion pieces uh, coming from this particular perspective this feminist perspective so yeah so julie bindle published this this piece in 2004 uh, yeah around about the time that the gender recognition act was passed and she began with a critique of the human rights act which she said had confirmed the fears of many feminists about fancy lawyers defending all sorts of scum um, and she celebrated a Vancouver court decision to bar a transsexual woman from training as a rape counsellor, saying that for now, the law says that to suffer discrimination as a woman, you have to be uh, a woman. Um, and then just launches into a more general attack, accusing all trans people of conforming to stereotypes. She says, fuck me shoes and bird's nest hair for the boys, beards, muscles and tattoos for the girls. Think about a world inhabited just by transsexuals. It would look like the set of Greece. Um, and The Guardian got uh, far more complaints than usual for this piece. And they got like 200 letters or so, maybe more. Uh, I mean, around about the same time, you know, um, Big Brother on Channel 4 had a transsexual winner, for example. Um, there were ways in which, you know, something like reality TV was actually bringing, um, bringing more like trans people into the public eye the bbc had a series called paddington green which had a transsexual sex worker on it um and you know breaking down these stereotypes a bit um you know the bindle piece she got nominated for stonewall's journalists of the year a few years later um there was a kind of counter protest against her being nominated for this at this time stonewall uh, didn't include trans people um under its umbrella of people it advocated for you know lgbt rights group as it is now. Um, their position changed on that a few years ago. Um, but The Guardian was, was yeah, like I said, widely widely disliked. I mean, they would publish a lot of these, um, these hit pieces. Every now and again, they would commission a trans writer to write a response. But of course, you know, firstly, they didn't always do that. Secondly, the trans writers they used were not very well known. They weren't given a platform to write about anything else. Uh, and of course, they're arguing on these entirely unfavourable terms. Yeah, I uh, guess what's interesting about the way that, that, well, the the opportunity that you got there was the potential for not having to, yeah, write responsive pieces to do something a bit more interesting and a bit more expansive, which well, that was exactly is, is unusual, why, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, I was surprised at how much space they gave me. I ended up writing 30 pieces for this series over between 2010 and 2012. Um, and it was, you know, I was seeing it as an opportunity to change the discourse, you know, rather than having to argue against negative stereotypes of us or just argue about whether or not our identities were valid. 
mm-hmm. essentially whether or not we should be allowed to exist. You know, I was able to do uh, a blog on issues around employment and, you know, coming out at work and what that was like. I was able to do several blogs on um, what taking female hormones did to my body, did to my mind, did to my mood. Uh, I was able to write on um, coming out to my family and friends and social navigation, uh, doing speech and language therapy, all of these things. Uh, And it was open for comments as well. So it was able to create a sort of sense of community around it. And there were some kind of regular commenters, particularly trans people who were sort of quite pleased in a way you know often quite critical but quite pleased that the garden had opened up this space and of course it was opening up space for other trans writers as well my editor at the life and style section you know crucially all the sort of bindle birchall greer who i've just mentioned they were all publishing through comment is free uh this was publishing through life and style so it's a different section of the paper with different editors mm-hmm. um i don't know what the what alan rusbridger would have been the overall editor of the garden at the time I don't know what his position on trans issues was, but of course the Guardian was big enough that mm-hmm. you could have these two different strands not really talking to each other and doing quite different things um, because you had you know different section editors. I mean, my way into my way into the Guardian was actually a uh, a friend of mine from uh, from the football, a fellow Norwich City supporter who I knew, who just said, "Oh, I know someone at the Guardian. I can you know I can." talk to them and see if they would like to run this blog and he he sorted it out so you know it turns out that watching Norwich City sort of stumble from one disaster to the next throughout the mid-2000s was, yes. was not as big a waste of time as it seemed. Norwich, um, Norwich City Mafia, notorious. Well, I'm, I'm glad I got something good out of watching all that dross. But, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, the Canaries mate, I know all about you lot. Yeah. Um, um, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that, that in t- I guess in 2010, The Guardian is still responding to what was quite a lively blog culture. I mean, it's kind of easy to forget with the advent of the, the platforms that, you know, there were a lot of standalone blogs. And I guess The Guardian was sort of feeling its way towards sort of engaging with what was happening online and, and perhaps commissioning you was, you know, in a sense of its moment. You know what I mean? It's like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Gone, I mean very much gone back to the world of a handful of um big name uh opinion writers um and le- less of a sense i think of um uh, of trying to find you know what's going on online in the way that perhaps they were a decade ago yeah i mean definitely there was a sort of period where comment sections blogs forums social media and traditional journalism were all kind of colliding and merging into each other in quite interesting ways. And I really think what I was doing 10 years ago was was very much part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you say, I think um, I think the bridge has been pulled up in, in lots of ways. And that's partly to do with the, the rise of the left, um, which is something I want to come back to, because I think there are lots of very interesting parallels between the way that trans people got treated by, you know, there's a liberal media um the sort of new new left that arose under Jeremy Corbyn got treated by the uh, liberal media, but we'll come back to that if we can. Yeah, that, really that, yeah, yeah. About that's, that. that's um, yeah. You know, at this point, the the rise of the the new new left um, seemed like a, a million miles away, and I think it was partly you know the Guardian thought that argument had been won, um, and I think you were seeing more 
you know, more kind of leftist writers in comment sections in The Guardian, The New Statesman in the first half of the last decade than in the second, uh, for exactly that reason, um, you know, round about the same time that Oh, in the, uh, in the was, sense that they'd become a kind of uh, a curiosity to be to be indulged rather than any real threat to the liberal status. Yeah, and you know, did the sort of usual columnist thing of you know making a sort of publication seem more radical, interested than it was. So you know, round about this time, the Guardian was occasionally publishing people like Owen Hathaway, Mark Fisher, um, people from that sort of radical left sort of two thousands blogging scene, which. I was never actually present within, but I was doing something quite similar at the same time. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, most of those people did end up becoming kind of friends and, and colleagues. Um, but, you know, the Guardian series went very well. I think a lot of editors had told older trans writers, people who tried just before me to get into space like the Guardian, had said, look, nobody is interested in trans politics or culture or whatever. Um you know, people just want to hear about how hard your lives are or, you know, just debate the validity of your existence uh, because their existing columnists, quite high profile feminist columnists, you know, under the banner of freedom of speech, got to write these sort of hit pieces on trans people as a group. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, I think The Guardian commissioned my blog series because it was cheap. They basically commissioned three pieces on spec. So I had to write three things up front. Uh, if they liked them, they told me they'd run a full series. If they didn't, they'd have paid me a kill fee. They'd probably given me, you know, sort of 200 pounds or something for the three pieces. And that would have been that. So it was very, very low risk for them. Mm-hmm. Um, as it happened, they liked the three pieces I turned in. Um, they asked me to sort of make one of them less political and more personal. But that was really a matter of getting the politics into the subtext more than being very, very upfront about it. Uh, but nonetheless, that worked. Um and so the you know like so the pieces quickly built up like a very big audience you know it was obvious that something you know we were doing something here that hadn't been done in a big mainstream i mean there were tons of transition blogs i mean this was one reason why i did the series was because um you know when i was growing up there was just nothing available by this time you know turn of the decade um there was tons of stuff out there, but nothing that felt like an obvious starting point for somebody. So I was sort of trying to create that. It was kind of like the opposite problem. Um, and, you know, I kind of realised that doing so in a space that carried a level of prestige like The Guardian would would help me do that. Um, I mean, the other thing we tried to do was get The Guardian to commission other trans writers to write one-off pieces to go alongside the regular blog. Um, and that had a limited degree of success. We got Stephen Whittle, who had been involved with the Gender Recognition Act, to write a sort of short history of trans politics. We got uh, Ross Caveney's trans journalist, writer, poet, activist, to write something about trans language. And we got um, Bethany Blatt, the comedian, to write a piece about her life as a trans stand-up. But, you know, some of the slightly more radical stuff that we tried to get in didn't make it through. I tried to get... Um, a trans person of colour, Ignacio Rivera, to write something. Uh, I tried to get another comedian, Jason Barker, who was a trans man who had a child, to write about that experience of male pregnancy. Um, One or two other pieces that I didn't manage to get through. But the series itself, you know, ran until 2012. So I managed to get it all the way through to writing about uh, the experience of surgery and, you know, wrote like a 3,000 word piece on that um so yeah i wrote about 30 pieces and about three thirty thousand words for them you know it's a short book 
um, over that time um, and then concluded the series with a list of further resources for trans people and obviously you know through kind of hyperlinking through the comment section through the expanded discourse around this stuff on Twitter did manage to point quite a big audience to a quite wide range of trans resources and you know working for the Guardian was useful because I'd had you know all through my 20s I'd had a lot of very boring um, public sector and private sector uh, office jobs and just everyone read the Guardian um, yeah. and often my pieces would be on the front page and I would have written something about about trans politics or you know about like trans subculture or trans performance art or the experience of taking hormones um, and it would be on the front page of the Guardian and you know you would reach somebody who would never ever ever go into the LGBT section of a library um, and pick up a book about this stuff but might just click on the article and you know uh, find it interesting and engaging and funny, maybe, um, which I tried to make all of the pieces, you know, um, and you could reach a quite different audience in, in that way. And yeah, like I said, really changed the terms of, of conversation. Mm-hmm. So and you also spent some time um, writing for the New Statesman, right? Yeah, I mean, before the end of the Guardian series, you know, I was looking to to write elsewhere. I'd moved to London. I was sort of getting more ensconced within certain types of journalistic scene. Uh, And, you know, with the New Statesman, because they were expanding their online presence as well, the staggers, as they called their their blog section. I think Laurie Penny was writing for them at the time. Um, I forget who else. But, you know, they, they wanted me as a as a presence there and I think they were expecting me to just write more about trans issues and actually I was quite happy to have a space where I could write about trans issues if I had something to say on them which I did I mean every year every year for the New States I'd write a kind of stock take of the position of trans people in the media which between 2011 and 2014 became gradually less optimistic and more angry um, but I would also write on a variety of other issues I wrote things on football I wrote on literature and film and art uh, I remember writing something on the Commune of Paris for them um, and you know managed to get some quite interesting stuff through with them you know I wrote 4,000 words on a computer game from 1986 for them for example which is still one of my favorite things I've ever published um, what was the computer game it was called Alter Ego um, and it had the the strap line what if you could live your life over again it was this sort of text-based like life simulator where it asked you lots of sort of it gave you lots of scenarios and you had to make choices and you developed a personality. And um, I mean, I wrote about it from this like trans and queer perspective because the game didn't include those uh, and sort of asked, you know, questions about exclusion and how these, these things change over time and what like a contemporary version of this sort of game might look like. Um, but, you know, it was it was quite an interesting space to have. Mm. Um I mean, what I found was that sort of throughout sort of 2013 and particularly 2014, um, you know, the Statesman commissioned a number of blog posts uh, from writers who were sort of questioning the terms of trans liberation movements from a feminist perspective. Um, so I sort of mentioned earlier, you know, this line of, um, of feminist transphobia uh, that really goes back to the sort of 60s and 70s around about the time that um, transsexual women in particular went from being uh, isolated media phenomena. I'm thinking of people like Christine Jorgensen, the American transsexual woman who became globally famous in the early 50s, 
uh you know so throughout the sort of 50s and towards the early 70s transsexual women particularly in the u.s move from being isolated you know quote-unquote incidents to being an identifiable social category identifiable social type Mm -hmm. uh, partly because the gender identity clinics um you know they they have a sort of quite narrow and conservative idea of what a man or woman is and in order to get hormones and surgery from them you have to meet that definition so you have to sort of dress and act in a certain way um and so you know one of the things that happens in the u.s is you get the second wave feminist movement which really prizes the establishment of women-only spaces and kind of understandably in historical context there is some debate over whether or not transsexual women should be allowed into these spaces um and as is often the case with these sorts of debates you know the loudest and nastiest voices you know kind of cast along shadow um you know there's a particularly notorious text by a um american writer i think former nun turned feminist writer called janice raymond called the transsexual empire where she basically sort of suggests that um you know transsexual women are the sort of most visible face of a plot to infiltrate the feminist movement um it's a staggeringly vicious book um you know she talks about wanting to mandate transsexual people out of existence um you know she makes all sorts of um you know kind of plausibly deniable um links with you know nazi experiments with gender which you know rather elides the fact that the you know the first people that the nazis went for on taking power in 1933 was the institute of sexual science magnus hirschfeld the openly gay jewish sexologist who did a lot of work on gender variants in the 1910s 20s that's Uh, super interesting just before we go on julia i mean does that text have a sort of family resemblance to sort of classic conspiratorial forms of narrative i mean you talk about a a sort of infiltration of yeah i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't say noticeably so i mean it's not you know i wouldn't compare it to other protocols of the elders of zion or something right um you know it's got its own sort of schema of um of hatred which it works out at you know great lengths right um but but, you know this it was praised by a a sort of secret attempt to infiltration or i mean I mean, it was it was sort of I mean, it's a funny one because it was praised by a lot of people in the anti psychiatry movement. Like Thomas Satz wrote an introduction to it. Right. Um, the 60s. anti psychiatric yeah. uh, author. Um, it, but, you know, it sort of it lays out, uh, you know, it details like efforts by transsexual women to become involved with American feminist culture. Uh, most famously attacked uh, Sandy Stone, who was a transsexual woman artist and sound engineer with an all-women record collective called Olivia Records, and they were quite happy to have Stone working for them. Um, but, you know, Raymond uh, wasn't. Um... So, I mean, there is, like, a paranoid edge to the book, for sure. Yeah, um... yeah. I'm just wondering, because, I mean, one of the things I, I think we're going to come on to is the way in which... Um, uh, trans rights are you know they have these meaningful parallels with other forms of um you know sites of cultural conflict um 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this this period, sort of 2010 to 14, it felt like we were making sort of slow and faltering progress in terms of media representation. You know, a number of other trans writers were appearing in The Guardian. I'm thinking people like um, Paris Lees, Ross Caveney, C.N. Lester, other people who appeared, you know, kind of less regularly um, were appearing in the the statesmen uh, were appearing more in television programs, of course, famously like Laverne Cox in Orange is the New Black. Um, and over in the US, of course, Laverne Cox became Time magazine's first ever trans cover star. They, you know, in May 2014, they ran this article about the transgender tipping point uh, and this idea that, um, you know, trans rights had now reached this point where they couldn't be stopped. Um, right. And you know, at the same time, there had been, you know, in this country, certainly there had been quite a lot of pushback against trans representation. So two things had been happening. I mean, um, you know, in 2013, there are a few incidents of, of you know, high profile transphobic media coverage. One was Julie Birchall publishing um, at the beginning of 2013, a really uh, vitriolic piece for the Observer called Transsexual Should Cut It Out. Um, this was in response to Suzanne Moore having a Twitter row with a lot of trans people and allies over a piece that she'd written for um, the New Statesman about female anger, which is actually, you know, on the whole, quite a good piece. Uh, but it had a line about how people were aspiring to the body of a Brazilian transsexual. And a lot of people pointed out to Suzanne that, you know, this was a sort of fairly crude piece of stereotyping. It was a weird thing to attack people for. The murder rates for trans women in Brazil were through the roof. Um, even the Brazilian transsexual model that she was referring to was called Leia T, uh, who had been publicly disowned by um, by her father, who was a famous Brazilian football player from the 1980s called uh, Toninho Cerezo. Um, and, you know, so even she had, you know, suffered quite a lot from mm. validating her identity. Um, and, you know, Suzanne did not take this criticism very well at all. Um, you it's not, like, um, it's not like a high-profile columnist to, to be thin-skinned on. <laughs> well, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't possibly. think that's ever happened at, at any other time. Before or since, yeah. And so, you know, seems to be that. Anyway. writing this, you know, kind of astonishingly um, unpleasant article, which, to be honest, was not really much nastier than the the Bindle and Birchall pieces that are preceded in the 2000s but of course you know because people partly because people like me had been writing for the guardian far more people who you know in the past just would have just ignored this said they were really you know appalled by the observer publishing yeah. something so mean-spirited um so the observer took the piece down um alan rusper just spent all day on twitter uh telling people that it was actually an observer piece right didn't matter who it was um you know as a friend of mine put it you know alan you don't need to reply to piss wizard the guardian yeah. took it off their website because uh, obviously all the observer stuff just automatically gets cross-posted um and then you know birchall was complaining about being silent so toby young uh immediately republished it in the daily telegraph so birchall had been so silenced that you know she got the same article published in two national newspapers within 24 hours which you know many of us can only dream of such silencing but um 
the Press Complaints Commission said they couldn't take any action against Birch Law or the Observer because the article attacked a group rather than individuals. Mm. Um, so there wasn't really any recourse. Um, of course, we haven't talked about the Leveson Inquiry, uh, where, you know, in 2011, uh, Transmedia Watch had made a submission um, to the inquiry. Um, and we should talk about that because it's quite important, quite interesting. You know, it was the first time that trans people had really been able to answer back to the press. Um, you know, uh, Helen Belcher from from Transmedia Watch, you know, made this presentation that aimed to show the unethical and often horrific and humiliating treatment of transgender and intersex people by the British press. And they said that this was a stark and instructive example of what newspapers, often but not exclusively tabloids, will seek to get away with when no effective formal or internal restraints are in place. So they talked about this sustained climate of ridicule and humiliation for trans people, trans people and their families being singled out for intrusion, routine misgendering, use of previous names and before and after photos. Uh, and these were all things that the press have been doing for decades. But, you know, at this point, this material would obviously remain online forever. So it was even more of a problem for the people targeted than it had been before. Um, you know, they also kind of collectively demonised trans people. They mocked, you know, community support and activist groups, focused intensely on trans convicts with the heavy implication that all trans people were criminals um, and published numerous pieces attacking the provision of sex reassignment surgery on the NHS. Um, so these were all things that were going on in the first half of the 2010s. And I think the Nadir was probably um, an article that Richard Littlejohn published for the Daily Mail in 2013 um, because, you know, Birchall had just kind of launched this, you know, swinging attack at trans people as a group, just relying on kind of crude stereotypes and it upset a lot of people, but you know, that was it. Uh, the Daily Mail really stepped up their hostile coverage of trans people after the Leveson inquiry and um, Little John singled someone out. And the person he singled out was a primary school teacher in Accrington who had recently decided to transition and gone back to work uh, in early 2013 as a woman um, called Lucy Meadows and the school had told the children and their parents uh, that this was happening. Uh, a local newspaper had reported a single parent saying that his young sons were too young to be dealing with this uh, and little John picked this up and wrote a piece for the mail called he's not just in the wrong body he's in the wrong job and he asked if anyone had thought about the devastating effect that Meadows gender reassignment would have on her pupils um, not long after this piece was published, uh, Lucy Meadows killed herself. The suicide rates for trans people are very, very high. Um, a Stonewall uh, survey recently found that something like 46% of trans youth have attempted suicide at some point. So the, the suicide rates are very, very high. Uh, and Meadows killed herself not long after this piece was published and she was being hounded by journalists near her home. Um, and a lot of commentators at the time, of course, lots of trans people on Twitter uh, were, you know, myself very much included, were absolutely furious about this um, and were relentlessly attacking the male. I don't think Richard Littlejohn's on Twitter because I don't think you can do something that cowardly and have a Twitter account. It's very noticeable that a lot of these provocative, you know, arch, um, you know, kind of socially conservative journalists who defend everything they do on freedom of speech grounds. A lot of them aren't actually on Twitter, like Brendan O'Neill isn't, Richard Littlejohn isn't, uh, mm. Julie Birchall isn't, um, or not very openly. Um, and, you know, don't actually kind of face up to the sort of backlash that these pieces 
produced but a lot of journalists at that point kind of closed ranks and said look you can't blame little john or the male for this woman taking her own life and lots of people including me said no maybe not it can't help 